To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Hello and welcome to the Discovery National Science Radio Show. If you like your science big, if you like your science small, if you like some science in between. If in short, science is your sort of thing, then discovery is the sort of thing you'll like. On tonight's menu, we have uh, Dr. Karl Kozonicki, pheromones and stem cells. Not necessarily in that order and certainly not together. But first up, here's the news with Gina Sartori. <laughs> The March issue of Nature magazine reports that a team of researchers at Monash University have refuted a long-standing claim that embryonic twins have a worse chance of survival than single babies. In what rather eerily became known as the vanishing twin theory, a US researcher called C.E. Brockledge used statistical and mathematical models to predict that one in 50 twins are lost in pregnancy at the embryonic stage. One of the twins is reabsorbed by the mother. If you apply this statistic to the number of babies actually born, this suggests that about 15% of us were originally conceived as one of a pair of twins. But Dr Stephen Tong and friends at Monash Uni's Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology have looked at the twin births from a different angle. Instead of using statistics and modelling, they have monitored 500 pregnancies within the first six weeks after conception to see which ones directly indicate twins, even before the embryos themselves can be seen. They do this through monitoring the presence of the corpus luteum. This tissue produces hormones during early pregnancy and is produced during ovulation. One corpus luteum means one egg. And here's one for you. Two corporea lutea mean two eggs. From the 27 women in their study who were found to have produced two corporea lutea, nine of them gave birth to twins. If the vanishing twin theory were correct, say the Monash, Monash team, they would have expected only one set of twins to be born. So it seems after all that the survival rate of twin embryos is about the same as for single embryos. And from Science Magazine, smokers who resolve to quit often feel the first painful pangs an hour after their last cigarette. Researchers have now identified the brain circuits that trigger this craving, which might offer new routes to beating addiction. One lungful of smoke swamps the brain cells with nicotine, causing release of reward chemical dopamine. Within seconds, the same cells become desensitised to nicotine, so it's actually unclear why smokers enjoy a whole cigarette, seeing how the buzz happens in the first breath. Nicotine influences other brain circuits that fine-tune the dopamine release, Daniel McGee and his team at the University of Chicago have found. In particular, a hit of nicotine switches off one circuit for about an hour. This circuit normally stops cells releasing dopamine. Falling dopamine when this circuit recovers may send smokers reaching for the pack and the cycle of cravings may underlie nicotine's addictive properties. Because once the reward is finished, you seek another one and then once you stop, it disappears again so you have to seek another one. So a chemical that stops this circuit rebounding could quash the craving, he speculates, and th hence the subsequent reward of a cigarette. 
And finally, a bit of rustling paper there. We have all heard about the problems with overprescription of antibiotics. Resistant strains of bacteria running rampant, taking over the whole world, running major corporations. Now it seems we have to be careful what we prescribe to our crops as well or we may risk herbicide-resistant strains of weeds that compete with crops and presumably end up taking over the world. The University of Western Australia's Herbicide Resistance Initiative has found that perhaps 50% of ryegrass populations show signs of resistance to a common herbicide known as glyphosate. Most people have heard of this chemical as, rock, as Roundup. Glyphosate is popular because when it's sprayed on the land, it kills any growing plants and then breaks down immediately leaving no lasting lethal effects for the next crop to be planted. Resistant ryegrass rye thumbing its nose at the farmers would be bad news for this particular uh, herbicide. Dr Paul Neve, a researcher with the initiative, suggests that farmers should start alternating their use of Roundup with other equally effective herbicides. By limiting the use of glyphosate, the proportion of resistant strains will decrease in the weed population. The research indicates that resistance seems to show up sometime between the 15th and 20th application of the herbicide. Farmers in the WA wheat belt, for example, have used glyphosate on average 11 times. So the time to inform farmers about the risk of resistant weeds with grandiose schemes for world domination is now. Dr. Carl Krosnicki spoke with Cameron from 2SER's Monday Breakfast Show before his Science Forum talk at the University of Sydney. The person here we're talking about is a guy called Richard Feynman, who was a famous Nobel Prize winning physicist who did most of his later great work in um, topless bars in California. And he came up with QED, quantum electrodynamics. That's my job, to read. To read, and uh, I read his autobiography, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. And he was involved with the Manhattan Project during the Second World War to build the first nuclear weapons. And um, he thought all of the secrecy was stupid. And so he taught himself a little bit of lockpicking and used to go around sometimes after hours shifting, opening locked safes and shifting material from one locked safe to another. So you'd go there in the morning and you'd find yourself looking at somebody else's top secret work. <laughs> he also at one stage um, needed to do some work on cross-sections on how well certain metals absorb uh, radiation. And he really didn't know. Nobody knew at that time. He said, oh, I need to test gold. How much do you want? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me 20 kilos. They, they gave him this ball. It turned out to be 40 kilos. It's a ball maybe the size of a basketball, but you can't lift it. Right. So, so he, he did a bit of research with it, uh, found it wasn't appropriate, then used it as a doorstop for the rest of the Second World War. <laughs> Well, at least they had a, a useful end. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm glad he could find something useful to do with that gold. In fact, the um, ancient um, Mayans, when they'd uh, have a wedding ceremony, they'd uh, celebrate it, consummate it, uh, not in the usual way, by, but by having the recipients drink some special drink called chocolate. They value chocolate very highly. And so this is the only drink that was good enough to celebrate. They drank it in the gold cup. And afterwards, they threw the gold cup over into the edge of the lake, or into the lake because uh, the gold was not as valuable as the chocolate. Now, chocolate, now, there's something truly valuable. 
gold comes and goes, you know. Oh, yeah, I think uh, chocolate. You know, I think we should actually uh, rearrange how we do our foods. And instead of talking about the five food groups, I reckon we should do it on colour. And right at the top, after the red and the green and the white food, there should be brown food, chocolate. <laughs> like, I have an opinion about vaccination, for example, and having um, read huge amounts of literature, uh, both for and against, uh, and having worked in hospitals, uh, I find myself finding all the literature against um, vaccination not worth a pinch of feces wrapped in newspaper. Uh, basically, and I find it just leads to dead babies, and I find myself strongly in favour of it, but based on the facts as, as I interpret them, and I went to the trouble of actually reading a huge body of literature, everything I could find on vaccination, and um, so I, I do have a bit of an opinion there, but that's only after reading very, very widely. I do try to avoid opinions, though. But uh, so it must be hard to keep the the opinion and uh, the the knowledge base separate. Oh no. Try really hard. It's just as difficult as vaccination because if you talk to me about, say, the greenhouse effect and see and say, oh, it's not real, you know, there's no evidence for it. Well, I can say, oh well, that's the, uh, I must agree with you slightly. You know, there is some evidence that does seem contradictory, and that doesn't really matter uh, tomorrow because by your actions, regardless of what you do tomorrow, you're not going to really change the world much, whether you believe or disbelieve in the so-called enhanced warming greenhouse effect. But with vaccination, you can choose not to have your baby vaccinated and lead to a dead baby or a very sick baby. And we had a long period during which time there were absolutely no deaths from uh, whooping cough. And then there were various TV shows and people writing about it from an intellectual point of view saying, oh, this vaccination is bad, now we've got dead babies. You know, and and that, that is something where you can actually uh, affect somebody else's well-being you know, by killing them. It seems like that's a, a fairly important part of, of what you're doing, is actually making the, the science a bit more enjoyable and, and getting people to actually have some fun with it. Well, that's the whole point. I don't, I don't try to find the bits that are fun. I mean, I don't, I don't make science fun, but rather I find the bits that are fun anyway. Like, there's not a lot you can do with a paper on the what happens if you get some incredibly rare element like Lorentzium and excited with X-rays, and then look what happens to the third PD um, electronic excitation state. I mean, it hasn't been done before. You need to have that data. But it's just not going to do anything to the average citizen in the street. But on the other hand, how to bet cool down the world uh, and how you can sing without using your mouth, well, that's, that's different. I might know. I'm going to have to come along so I can learn that one. Ah, well, there's many things in the world to learn. So I, I, I spend hours, I spend hours a day reading my way through $10,000 worth of scientific literature. Every year, actually, that's the total cost. And works out about a pile of meter thick every month. And that's where I find my information. God, that's a fairly phenomenal pile. Well, yeah, as I say, it's just part of the territory. I'm, my job is to read, man. I get there, I get the books, and I read. All right. Carl, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Dr. Cameron, and forgive me for my foolishness in not understanding the facts phone line, which no. I now understand. <laughs> I'm sorry to your listeners for beeping him in the ear with a loud bleep, too. That's quite all right. We can, uh, we've all learned something from it now. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Bye. That was our honorary discovery member, Cameron, interviewing Dr. Carl, the man who is paid to read. Cameron is actually from the Monday Breakfast Show at 2SER, and you can hear more of him and the rest of the Monday Brecky crowd 6 to 9am on 2SER Mondays. Now, if you're married or in a long-term relationship, have you ever slept on the other person's side of the bed when he or she is away? 
Why does a child's security blanket or teddy bear lose its appeal when washed? Why is dancing a courtship ritual common to nearly every culture? And why do the menstrual cycles of women who live or work together become synchronized? The answer seems to lie in communication molecules called pheromones, as Lachlan Watmore reports. I know two people who send each other dirty t-shirts in the mail. He lives in Sydney and she lives in Massachusetts and they keep their relationship vibrant and sensual by being able to smell each other over vast distances. You may find this unusual, and then again you may not. The smell of a loved one can be very important to us, even if we're unaware of it. Animals have got an extensive chemical communication system. In other words, we can send messages to each other by smell. The way we do it is by releasing a special communication molecule called a pheromone, which is specifically dedicated to delivering one message and one message alone. The word pheromone is derived from the Greek words pherion and hormone, meaning excitement carrier. The International Society for Chemical Ecology defines pheromones as, quote, behavior or development mediating chemicals which organisms use to transmit information between individuals of the same species. They include sex attractants, aggregation and alarm signals, trail or territory markers, oviposition deterrents or compounds which induce gamete release or control more complex social behavior and govern many other activities. Most of these species-specific messages are coded in complex multi-component mixtures released in extremely small amounts. We tend to associate pheromones with sexual attraction. I did a quick perusal of the internet on the subject today and what I saw didn't surprise me in the slightest. There are ads upon ads for pheromone wipes and sprays, all of them promising instant sexual gratification with prospective bed partners forming an orderly queue outside your bedroom door which you'd better replace with a revolving one. However, as the definition I just read to you said, there's more to pheromones than just making a prospective mate go all gooey. Because for every ad I saw for pheromone products aimed at the sex market, there was an ad for serious agricultural pheromones to be used as more enviro-friendly insect control. The study of pheromones in mammals like us humans is still quite young, but the study of insect pheromones has been around since 1956. In that year, a team of German researchers isolated a new compound from certain glands on the abdomens of over half a million female silkworm moths. They found that even the slightest trace of this compound, which they called bombycol, after the scientific name for the moth, caused the males of the species to go absolutely nuts, beating their wings madly in a flutter dance to attract some unseen female. Since then, pheromones in insects have been extensively studied, and one of the most interesting discoveries has got to be the importance of pheromones in bee societies. Let's look at the common honeybee, Apis mellifera. A hive of these bees has got only one reproductive individual, the queen. All the workers are sterile and female. Now, a freshly laid egg inside the nursery chamber can develop either into a queen or a worker. The social position or caste of the bee larva is not predetermined genetically. Whether or not an individual achieves sexual maturity and becomes a queen depends on what it gets fed by the nursery workers. Usually, the nurses direct, uh, construct a normal brood cell and feed the larva the usual diet of developing workers. However, when an old queen leaves the hive with a swarm of workers to start a new colony, the nursery workers suddenly start constructing royal cells and filling them with royal jelly, food for a princess larva who grows up to be a queen. 
They do this because they're no longer restricted from doing it. When the old queen was still around, she released a pheromone, which retarded the nurses from brooding royal larvae. This is as much a political move as a biological one. There ain't enough room in the hive for two queens. There are many reasons for this, including the fact that the genetics of bees demands it for the social system of the bees to make evolutionary sense. By that I mean that worker bees are sisters who share a whopping 75% relatedness to each other, which is one and a half times more related than you are to your siblings. And if you tune into next week's edition of Discovery, I'll tell you why. Meanwhile, back to pheromones. Insect pheromones, as I mentioned, can be used effectively for insect control. The usual method of this is to set up a trap with a female pheromone of your target species wafting out from it. All the males come running, or should I say flying, get caught in the trap and die. Without males, there's no reproduction. Males are good for some things, you know. And the population moves on or dies out. So much for insects, but what about mammals? Mammals have much more complex behaviour patterns than insects, and stating unequivocally that a certain behaviour is driven or influenced by pheromones requires a lot of research and perhaps a little courage too. That said, there have been some interesting discoveries. Structures have been found in the nasal passages of lab rodents, mice, rats and hamsters, which appear to be dedicated to detecting pheromones, leaving other olfactory or smelling structures to detect other chemicals such as food, etc. These structures have been called VMOs, which stands for vomeronasal organs. They are described as tiny, cigar-shaped sacs containing nerve endings. Pheromone-driven behaviour in hamsters has been documented. Researchers have covered a male hamster in secretions from a female hamster's vagina and then watched other male hamsters, who would normally ignore him, try to mate with him. OK, so what about humans then? Well, it turns out that we've got VMOs too. It used to be believed that we'd lost it during our development as embryos, but that claim has since been refuted. Like the rat VNO, ours consists of a pair of sacs that open into two shallow pits on either side of the nasal septum. The sensory cells that line these sacs are different from olfactory cells present in the nose, which indicates that they are dedicated to a particular task. Good evidence for the existence of human pheromones is the McClintock effect, named after a researcher who documented the synchronisation of women's menstrual cycles when they were living together. Women living in a group such as a college or share house appear to put out pheromones that either speed up or slow down the menstrual cycles of their housemates in order to synchronise them. Also, women who live with men appear to have more regular menstrual cycles, possibly as the result of pheromones wafting from the man's armpit. Yeah. However, some researchers still debate the existence of human pheromones at all. Humans are sophisticated creatures in terms of our communication. We have many techniques for it, including speech, facial and body gesture, and of course, uh, telephones. Insects and rats have less sophisticated communication systems, and it makes sense that they would rely on chemicals more than us, particularly insects who are very dependent on pheromones for many reasons. So, it's been argued that, as we do what Stephen Jay Gould told us not to and start talking about higher animals and lower animals, we higher animals have no longer any need for pheromones because they've been replaced with other methods of communication. Well, time will tell. To conclude, I'd like to tell you a quick story. Many years ago, a teacher of mine, Father Peter Thompson, told me that Puritans in the 17th century forbade dancing because they reasoned that to hold a woman in your arms was to incite lustful thoughts and turn your mind away from God. 
Father Peter and I had a good laugh about the sexual frustration of these poor people and thanked his God to be living in such an enlightened age where dancing with a woman was a pleasant, sociable and chaste activity. But now, I'm not so sure. I think I'll go home, have a good long snort of my lady's t-shirt and get right back to you. Oh, oops. That was the amorous Lachlan Watmore and those mysterious, charming molecules called pheromones. Actually, next week we have something a little bit special planned, uh, so Lachlan's promised follow-up may have to be postponed. You're listening to Community Radio's National Science Show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio satellite, ComradeSat. Still to come, the ethics of fiddling with your stem cells. is a lawyer with the Australian National University and he has a particular interest in cell biology, cloning and stem cell research. And where is it all going to end? We are going through the process now where the established journals are presenting the material which you used to be able to get on paper in an electronic format. That is very, very convenient because you can find a reference to a current article and have that article on your screen in 20 seconds and put it onto the printer in another 20 seconds if you decide it's something that you really need to read. So what are the problems as you see it of the web? I see a real danger in the very tight control which is exerted by a very small number of international publishers. I think they've gotten too much power. They've had too much power given to them and now they're using that power to exert or extract a very lot of money from the scientists who are their customers and who also provide their raw material and incidentally it's the same scientists who make sure that the raw material is reasonable and in the future how will we look back on today's science publishing I fear that in 10 years time we may look back at today and think oh that was the age of the free web that was the golden time of the web when the information was there and you could access it without control for instance, just this morning I was reading that Microsoft, which is a very large dominant corporation, is planning to release 
a new operating system which will automatically link any word on any web page which anybody looks at back to Microsoft products. So if I'm talking about a type of car on my website, that car can be linked to an advertiser selling that car or selling spare parts for the car without my permission as a website owner and without your permission as the person reading it. So the future of the web is not assured and who knows where it will go. Hopefully up, but perhaps down. Ah, sorry about that. That was actually Stephen Pratt, who's awfully concerned about the increasing power of a few big publishers and the possible effect of the web. Uh, we should be getting back now to stem cells and Alex Bruce. The Great Barrier Reef is geographically very com from us in this edition of Discovery. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2ser.com. That's discovery at 2ser.com. Contributing to the program were Gina Satori, Ian Wolfe was in the background, Cameron from Monday Brecky put in his oar, and Lachlan Watmore had a go himself. We got by, or we will get by, with a little bit of help from CSIRO. Discovery has been produced by Chris Stewart in the studios of 2SER Sydney with technical support from Lachlan Watmore. Discovery is broadcast nationally by ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Tim Baines. Join us for more science next week on Discovery. Discovery.